This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Here we are to worship. I'm making you uncomfortable yet? (laughs) I've been told don't stare at people because I look weird. Is that what suffering is doing in your life? Is it taking away your ability to worship? This morning, we're going to be continuing our study of Revelation, and we have uh, reached the point of the church of Smyrna. They're known as the suffering church or the persecuted church, typically. The text is going to come from Revelation 3, verses 8 through 11, and I'd like to turn and read that first. Revelation chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, or I'm sorry, 2, 8 through 11. And under the church, or the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. If you heard those words... Would you be a little bit muted in your worship this morning? Would it be difficult for you to focus? Like Brother Jason said, would we be able to fixate on Jesus and remember what we're here to do and who we're standing before? Would we stand there silently just looking at Him? I took the time to look around and just briefly look at every person that was here. Imagine when we come in here, we stand before God, we look Him in the eye, and what does He see? And do we have an excuse if it's not joy and thankfulness because we suffer? As we look at Smyrna, this was the next city and church of importance out of the seven churches in the province of Asia, and it was nearest to Ephesus, about 40 miles to the north. And the name Smyrna is synonymous with myrrh, and I find this very interesting. Myrrh is an aromatic substance that is used sometimes as a healing ointment and for embalming the dead. In fact, according to Psalm 45, verse 8, myrrh seems to have been the special perfume of Christ as king and bridegroom. One of the chief ingredients of myrrh was made by crushing and bleeding a plant of the same name. This is a thorny plant. It's a tree. grows to about... um, eight or nine feet high. It's very bitter to the taste, but it has a fragrant odor. And the more that you crush that plant and bruise it, the greater the fragrance. True to its name, Smyrna would also be crushed by cruel persecutions. And as a result, this church would be anointed for a death and a resurrection and renewal of life. And although these afflictions they would experience would be bitter to the taste, like myrrh, They would result in the world experiencing the perfume of heaven, as it were. But still, it must have been hard to hear 
that they would suffer, just as I believe it's hard for us to hear. So to study Smyrna properly, I feel that we need to spend some time studying the concept of biblical suffering. Let's first get more familiar with the city of Smyrna itself. Smyrna is actually one of the oldest cities in the world. It was, uh, it's got a very eventful history. It's located at the head of a beautiful bay or arm of the Aegean Sea. It's about 30 miles from the coastline, and historical texts depict Smyrna as one of the finest cities of Asia. It rivaled Ephesus to the south and Pergamus to the north. And Smyrna was said to be the birthplace of famous people like Homer. Uh, it was celebrated as a center of wealth and prosperity and a center of learning and religion. It was famous for its schools of science and medicine. It had a library, magnificent temples. There were sacred festivals and there were athletic contests. On the slopes of Mount Pegasus was a theater seating 20,000 people. And in AD 23, a great temple was built by and dedicated to the worship of Emperor Tiberius. Now, Mount Pegasus is a conical-shaped mound that rises more than 500 feet, and it was located in the center of the city. And at its summit, it was crowned with a shrine dedicated to Nemesis, a Greek goddess who was supposed to be a form of Artemis. You may remember her from our study on Ephesus. And because of its splendor, this hill, this Mount Pegasus, and its garland of magnificent buildings, this hilltop was also known as the Crown of Smyrna. Now, I couldn't find any pictures depicting that, but you can still see in the photo in the middle at the bottom sort of what it looks like and imagine beautiful buildings from the Roman era surrounding that with a temple up on top of that mountain. It was like a crown. Circling these buildings, they kind of circled it like a necklace on a statue, and it was really one of the finest streets in the ancient world. They called it the Street of Gold. Now, when Apollonius visited this city, he looked at all that, and he advised those very proud citizens to prefer a crown of good men instead of a crown of beautiful buildings. The city itself was sometimes called the Crown of Ionia. Now, this historical background gives significance to what Jesus said to them when he said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. This promise had special meaning to this church. You know, Smyrna is the only one of the seven cities of Asia which retains anything of its ancient standing. It's today the largest city of Asia Minor, and it's the commercial center of what some call the Levant, with a population of about 154,000 people. And the Turks renamed Smyrna to Izmir. This is what it looks like today. All through its long and eventful history, the city of Smyrna has suffered from besieging armies, massacres, earthquakes, fires, and plagues. About 600 B.C., the Lydians captured and almost completely destroyed the city. It lay in partial ruins for 400 years. It was crushed almost to death, but then was rebuilt by the Greeks and again became a flourishing city. It was restored to life and prosperity. The city was destroyed by a terrible earthquake in AD 178. This was only 80 years after the church had received the book of Revelation. The city was restored to more than its former beauty and glory by Emperor Marcus Aurelius. But there has several been a, been a period of time, more than two years, that there wasn't an earthquake. And true to form, the city was almost destroyed by a severe quake in 1688 when the earth opened up and swallowed 5,000 people. 
1758, a plague almost depopulated this city. And then in 1922, the Turks partially destroyed modern Smyrna. The lesson of the church at Smyrna, though, is not what you may think. Some say the lesson is unjust suffering is terrible, but trust God to preserve and avenge. Now, while that's true on some level, that does not encapsulate the full message. The full message is that suffering is part of God's plan. And we're to remember that Christ already blazed that trail. We're to understand that suffering is something God does well, he doesn't do it. He allows it purposely. He brings it to his most prized children in order to produce more abundant and pleasing fruit. You know, when you prune a tree, you're causing what initially appears to be damage and harm to the tree when you cut branches off. But what follows is a growth that is more abundant than would have, than would have been possible if you hadn't cut those branches off. So the truth is, this is all easy to say, but it is hard to believe, isn't it? No one wants to suffer. And we struggle sometimes to see the purpose in it. Sometimes, if we're honest, we do struggle to trust God that He is using our suffering for our good. So I want to take you on a journey through Scripture to examine a story that I believe puts suffering in the right perspective. Did you know that you can pinpoint the origin of suffering in the Bible and its purpose is outlined there. Let's take a journey back through time to where it all begins. Genesis 3.16, Under the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. This is where all suffering originates. And the question I'll pose is, was this just punishment to Eve? Or was it something more? To answer that, we need to consider the circumstances under which God gave this verdict. You see, when God created mankind, something special happened. Genesis 1 outlines for us the order in which God created all things. First, He creates the heavens and the earth, and He makes a warm, bright light to highlight its potential. He creates an atmosphere which at first was unnecessary, for there was not yet life. But He has great things in mind. Now God, the greatest artist, raises a special canvas upon which to continue his work, dry land. And on that land he brings forth trees, grass, and herbs, and these plants are going to reproduce, indicating that they're going to be used up in some way and therefore have to be replenished. These plants will be food, shade, and material for something that is yet to come. Now God creates the sun, moon, and stars. Why? For signs and seasons. Were these signs and seasons meant to communicate things to the plants? That's all that was here so far. No. Something is yet to come. God fills the waters and lands of the earth and air with life. And just like that, there are birds, fish, lowing cattle, creeping bugs, beasts of all shapes and sizes roaming the hills, mountains, plains, valleys, in the ocean. And miraculously, the plants and the water could sustain these people, or these creatures. It's all starting to make sense now. Everything God has done has a purpose and a place, and it is good. Perhaps this was the culmination of God's creative work. Perhaps nature, Mother Earth as the world refers to it, was the very ideal of God's vision. No, God isn't done. God looks at all this and He declares it good. 
for the crown of his creation. The crown, of, the crown jewel of creation wasn't Jesus. Because God didn't create Jesus. Jesus has existed since eternity past, just as God the Father has. So what else besides Jesus would God place such value on? The answer is found in Genesis 1, 26-31. God now creates mankind. And he was purposeful in doing that. If you're beginning to think that the order of creation matters to God's plan, you are correct. It is central to it. It's no accident that mankind came last in God's creative work. God made this earth and everything about it to accommodate you and I. God takes the time every step of the way to look on his work and declare it good until he made mankind. And then he said, now that is very good. Why are we special? Genesis 1.26 gives us the answer. God wants us to be his image bearers, his representatives in creation. Everything else on earth is subject to God's image bearers, just as all things are subject to God. The air, water, sea, land, plants, all creatures, it all exists for us to tend, use, and be sustained by. And that is all for the purpose of bringing glory to God. However you may think of yourself or others, understand that God formed you in the womb with a purpose. This is why David says in Psalm 139, 13 through 14, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Do you know that? This is the frame of mind God wants you and I to have. We are from conception before we are born, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. All of us. God created all things with our good in mind, and his plan was never meant to incorporate anything but joy, fulfillment, and service to him. But then along came a serpent, that old serpent, the devil. He saw God's pristine, clean creation like a masterpiece of canvas art, and he wanted to take it away from God. He can't steal from God, so he decided to throw mud at it figuratively to make it dirty and ruined instead. You know, the form of the serpent offered Satan no hands with which to throw mud, so he came with mud in his mouth. His words were poisonous venom meant to harm and destroy. See, Satan couldn't harm God directly, so he did the next best thing by defiling that which God loved, his crown jewel of creation, his image bearer, mankind. But God doesn't give the, Satan the victory. In Genesis 3, 14-15, we see him declare to Satan something theologians call the Proto-Evangelium. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust Thou shalt, uh, shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The proto-evangelium is a word that means the first gospel. 
Because God says that the woman will eventually produce a seed or a child whom Satan would harm, thou shalt bruise his heel, but that child would crush Satan, it shall bruise thy head. The child being referenced here is Jesus Christ. Now here's the point I want you to really drill down on. God in his mercy and love wasn't willing to give up on us. Remember, he called us a very good creation. And everything he did was to give us a place in which to serve him as his image bearers. So, immediately following this proto-evangelium, God says the following to Eve. Genesis 3.16, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Here, as I said, is the origin of suffering. The woman would suffer in childbirth. And I want to make the case that suffering in this context is synonymous with cleansing. Eve would experience suffering or cleansing through childbirth because of what it resulted in. But this is greater than Eve. The suffering in childbirth is a process that is prescribed for all women and it points to something wonderful. The woman would experience suffering, real suffering in childbirth. But eventually the seed, the proto-evangelium, would come, Jesus Christ. Now notice something else. In Genesis 3.14, we see that Satan is cursed. In Genesis 3.17, we see that the ground is cursed. But the suffering placed upon the woman and the man is not referred to as a curse. The words here matter. If you look more closely, you're going to see that the ground was cursed for your sake. Now, if we're to truly understand the purpose of suffering, we have to get this point. For your sake here doesn't just mean that the ground was cursed because of you. It also means it was cursed for you. For man, this is going to be just as painful in a different way as having babies is for your, your wife is the idea. You're going to be working in pain all your life long. Man is engaged in fruitless labor, an endless painful struggle that ends in death. It's futile. But the answer will come from where the troubles began. And all of mankind will eventually see Redemption come from the very suffering that their sin brought upon them. The birth of the Messiah, the Christ. Suffering is painful and burdensome, but that is not its purpose. I submit to you that suffering isn't the cause of our pain, it's the solution to it. It is the solution, whether we like it or not, that God ordained. Jesus understood this, in case you don't by what I'm saying, which is why he submitted to suffering on the cross so the cleansing of mankind could be achieved. He says in John 10, 18, speaking of his life, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Think of it this way. Let's say you have a beautiful silk dress worth thousands of dollars. Incredibly, they cost that much. I don't understand that. And you spill something on it, staining it. It's ruined. Unless you can remove the stain. 
There's only one cleaning product capable of removing that stain, but there's a warning on it that says don't use it on silk because it will dissolve the delicate threads. Well, you don't want to do that because the whole point in removing the stain is to restore the garment to its former useful, beautiful state. But if you don't get the stain out, the dress is ruined regardless because it can't be used anymore. You and I are that silk dress and sin is our stain. We cannot be utilized to fulfill our purpose as the image bearers of God so long as that stain remains. Death is the only answer to the stain of sin. It is that cleaning solution, so to speak, that's too much for us. It will destroy us. We're fragile like silk. Our frames are but dust. We are weak. So does God just discard us as useless? Or does He destroy us in removing the stain of sin? This is where Jesus comes in. Through Jesus, we can be cleansed without being destroyed in death. Now, to our point this morning, how did God promise to send Him, Jesus, to us in the Proto-Evangelium? Through the suffering of women in childbirth. If you don't think that's significant, you're missing the whole point. Don't you see it that Eve's suffering was merely wasn't merely a curse or a punishment. It was the solution, eventually, to our problem. And to this very day, suffering is still a way that God brings blessing to us in the end. Now, with this view of suffering in mind, let's look again at Christ's words to Smyrna. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead, and is alive, I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty. But thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Overcometh what? Their very real suffering. Christ identifies himself as the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Smyrna was sent a message of cheer from the one who had triumphed over death in the grave. And he had the keys of the tomb in his keeping. Jesus has given suffering a purpose. And like anyone else enduring suffering, it was good for Smyrna to be reminded of that. Jesus reminds them that he has already experienced the best and the worst, both life with the Father and death. He was the first to experience them, and he will be the last because he is everlasting. He took the first of the persecution, the first of the pain, and the first of death, so that he may have preeminence in all things. Likewise, he is the first to take for himself life after death. Jesus has been there. He's done that. He's seen it all, and he came through the other side. So when he says in verse 9, I know, you may rest assured that he knows what you're going through. He knows what you're up against. He knows your loss. He knows your pain. He knows the betrayal, and he knows the injustice that you face. Jesus knows, Jesus cares. He sees it all from his throne above. Oh yes, he cares 
with a perfect love. Come to Jesus for peace. Come to him for rest. Jesus knows. Jesus cares. The church of Smyrna would be crushed, but not permanently killed. There would come a new life more glorious than the first. The severe trials would pr uh, pr prove to be a blessing in disguise. Jesus reminds them, hey, this was my experience. For he too had been persecuted and slain. But now he's alive forevermore. It is persecuting or persecution and suffering that makes him, for them, for anybody suffering, a worthy example of patience under tribulation. And it allows us as the church to share in the character and victory of Christ. Remember John 15, verses 18 through 20? If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. 1 Peter 2, 20-23, For what glory is it, if when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus said he knew of the tribulation and poverty faced by the church at Smyrna. I want to share with you some of what they faced. The local church of Smyrna, as I said, was repeatedly crushed by bitter persecutions. It was several times virtually destroyed, but it's always been restored to life. This church felt the full force of pagan Roman persecutions of the 2nd and 3rd century. Smyrna was the home of Polycarp, and it was the scene of his martyrdom in AD 168. Many believe that this Polycarp was the angel or minister of the church of Smyrna at the time the message of Christ was delivered. This is based chiefly on the statement he made just before his death. When asked by the judge to renounce Christianity with Christ, he replied, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Tertullian tells us that Polycarp was consecrated the bishop of Smyrna, or the elder, by the apostle John. The hillside of Mount Pegasus, where he was burned at the stake, has since been reddened by the blood of 1,500 Christians at one time, and then 800 at another. Visitors who go to that city this day are shown the spot where Polycarp was supposed to have been martyred in the tomb where he was buried. Tamerlan... The Tartar chieftain captured the city of Smyrna in AD 1402 and massacred its inhabitants. And you know who he concentrated it on? Christians. Tradition says that he actually built a pyramid of the heads of his victims. Smyrna was the last Christian city to hold out against the Turks when they overran Asia Minor. When they finally captured it in 1424, they put to death nearly all of the Christian population. The destruction of thousands of Smyrnian Christians by the Turks in 1922 is fresh in the memories of many. But the local church still lives. A few years ago, it was said that there's more Christians who live in Smyrna than in any other Turkish city. 
Roman rulers and writers bitterly described Christians as the off-scouring of the earth, a novel and wicked superstition, and Christians were hated for their shameful deeds. Pliny declared that Christianity was an inflexible obstinacy, a depraved and excessive superstition. These false accusations made Christians outlaws against the religion and state of the Romans, and they were mercilessly hunted down, persecuted, and killed. This is an actual painting here. When you understand what it's talking about, if it doesn't tug at your heart, then something's not right. What we know about the Smyrna period of martyrdom covered about 200 years, which is the second and third centuries. Pagan Roman emperors attempted to destroy Christianity with the sword. They considered it a form of treason. Christians refused to forsake their faith and they were threatened with loss of citizenship rights confiscation of their property, imprisonment, torture, and death. Some believe that the seven churches represent stages of the historical church, and they point out that during these 200 years, Justin Martyr, with six other Christians, was scourged and beheaded in AD 165. Irenaeus is believed to have been put to death in 202 during the persecutions of Severus. Cyprian died under the persecutions of Trahan in 258, and Victorinus in 304 during the martyrdoms of Diocletian. Eusebius said, and this is where this painting comes in, that he observed large crowds of Christians who in a single day suffered decapitation and torture by fire. So many were martyred by the executioner's sword on that day that the sword was blunted. It became weakened after hitting neck after neck and was eventually broken. And the executioners, well, they killed so many Christians that they wore themselves out and they had to tap out and have somebody come in and take over for them just to continue the murders. It's impossible to estimate the number of Christian martyrs during those days of persecution. And the persecutors were so sure that the Christians were exterminated that a coin up there in the left was uh, struck in celebration of the triumph of pagan gods over the faith of Jesus. Yet, that painting there, can you imagine an innocent church who'd endured nothing but suffering? They've been made homeless, penniless, they're starving, they have no clothes, they're hated, they're tortured, they're thrown out into a coliseum as a spectacle, lions and tigers are released to tear them apart while alive, and you see them there engaged in their last prayer to God. How would you do if you were having to say your last prayer as the lions were racing toward you? Would you be muted in your worship? As a result of this relentless persecution, the church of Smyrna, as I said, they could barely afford food, clothing, and shelter. Everything had been taken from them. This church faced a type of persecution that kind of puts our modern persecution into perspective, doesn't it? I won't break it down this morning, but I think if you were to write down all the ways that we face tribulation today and you measure it against the church at Smyrna, you're going to conclude, as I have, that it's more a problem that we're spoiled than persecuted, at least in this nation. That may change, but the course of our lives thus far, we have not experienced this level of suffering. 
And praise God that he hasn't felt it was necessary. But sometimes he does. When Jesus used the word tribulation in our text, what he was saying is that this church was stuck between a rock and a hard place. They were hard-pressed. They were hemmed in and surrounded on every side. That's what that word means. They had no way out. Wherever they turned, they faced trouble. And Jesus understood this better than anyone else. That's why he reminded him that them that he'd suffered unto death. He'd lost so much more, and yet he'd risen to new life. Because of this, he could understand and empathize with them in a way no other could. So Jesus, he comforted the Smyrnians with the assurance that their poverty and temporal things could not rob them of their spiritual riches. But thou art rich, is his message to them. They were rich in grace and faith and had laid up treasure in heaven. Isn't it interesting that during the first three centuries, the church was characterized by material poverty and spiritual power, whereas the modern church is noted for its material wealth and spiritual weakness. The modern church professes to be rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing, but I wonder if the truth isn't that in God's sight, the church is often spiritually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked and in need of all things that would qualify it to be the light of the world. We know that's what he told the church at Laodicea, which we'll study later. What good are earthly riches and comfort and an absence of suffering if we're moral paupers and are spiritually bankrupt? The message to Smyrna is that Jesus alone can furnish spiritual treasure and he heaps it upon the faithful church who suffers for his sake. He says to the apathetic church at Laodicea, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou may be rich, and white raiment, that thou may be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that, you, that thou may see. You know, Smyrna was a church of extravagantly rich poor people. Persecution and physical suffering may bring earthly poverty, but it increases spiritual riches. For you see, persecution for the sake of righteousness has always been a blessing in disguise, just like Eve suffering in childbirth. The psalmist says it like this, Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12, For thou, O God, hast proved us, Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou brought us out into a wealthy place. There's another thing mentioned in our text, the synagogue of Satan. Um, Christ says he has knowledge of these people who claim to be Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, this either refers to uh, Jewish proselytes, which is a Gentile who converted to Judaism, or a Jew who refused Jesus and persecuted the church is another option. In some cases, it could be looked at as Christians who were led astray to believe that they had to observe the law as a Jew did in order to be an acceptable Christian. But in all cases, Christ was making clear the covenant is the only way to God and anything else is serving the goals of Satan. Now, the reason this is important and that it's in here is not so much that these people had a unique problem with people who didn't believe in Jesus picking on them. The problem is that Jesus is saying to them, 
You've got all these people telling you to turn away from me, that your suffering will stop if you'll just denounce me, if you'll be a good Jew, if you'll be a good Roman. It'll all stop. And until it does, we're going to persecute you, torture you, and kill you like the heathen you are. And Jesus says, these are not Jews. This is the synagogue of Satan, and don't forget that. Because the temptation would have been for the church at Smyrna to start to view their suffering as a consequence of something they were doing wrong, and therefore they needed to change. And since the focus was on the church, the only conclusion that they could draw about something being wrong would have been how they worship God. And Jesus is saying, don't you do that. That's the synagogue of Satan. In Revelation 2, verse 10, future trials are predicted, and it includes imprisonment. So we have to presume that things had already been bad for these guys. And maybe they were hoping for a word when they hear, oh, the Apostle John is sending us a letter. Maybe we're finally going to get some good news. Maybe all this is going to stop. He says it's from Jesus himself. I can imagine them opening up that letter, hoping for a reprieve, and this is what they see. Jesus says, says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. I imagine they were a little crestfallen at that point. You ever reached a point in your life where there's been such suffering in your estimation that you just need a break, and the next time something comes that's hard, you allow it to break you because you just think, I just can't do it anymore. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. God, give me a break. And the only thing he says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Worded another way, whatever you're about to suffer, you're going to suffer it, but I will undo it all as though it had never happened. And notice that these trials were said to come from the devil. And the persecution was a temptation that was trying to make them discouraged, give up their faith and hope. This was not a trial or test from God. But the Lord often permits temptations and suffering to come on us from the enemy in order to test our commitment. God, how much proof do you need? I come to church once a week. I sit there for an hour and listen to Brian ramble on too long. What more do you want from me? If we take the proper attitude, we're going to see that what the devil designs for our hurt will eventually result in his defeat, our good, and God's glory. Now regarding these 10 days of tribulation, there are some who have tied these to a period of years. And ten specific Roman emperors, in fact, and there's others who believe it's more likely ten actual days. Some people believe it's one brief period. It really doesn't matter. That, that kind of stuff is, is the foolish and vain babblings we're warned, warned against. What we're told is they're going to have ten days, and however it plays out, prophetically or actual, it doesn't matter. They're going to have a period of suffering. And 
while practically all Roman emperors during the Ephesian and Smyrnian periods persecuted Christians, ten of them were worse than normal. Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Hadrian, Severus, Maximus, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and Diocletian. In this view, for ten prophetic days where the persecution was to continue, we know that they were going to be tortured. Well, the last of these emperors I just listed, uh, there was a ten-year period, and it was the last and most bloody of those persecutions, Diocletian. It lasted from AD 302 to AD 312, and some commentators believe that the ten days may refer especially to this ten-year period with one day representing a year in symbolic prophecy. But as I said, regardless of what it is, I mean, when you look back over the scope of history, Smyrna suffered a lot longer than 10 years. But there was a very focused 10 years, and it could be one of those cases where it's a prophecy with an immediate and future fulfillment, a dual fulfillment prophecy, if you remember that lesson. But there's a promised reward, and the reward offered to the church of Smyrna was not only a crown of life, but Revelation 2 verse 11 adds, He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. So this crown of life, it was not a crown of royalty. It was a garland of life or a victor's wreath. Smyrna was noted for its athletic contests, and garlands of victory were given to the successful contestants. The idea here is that if we pursue Christ... At the expense of our lives, we'll eventually be trading this earthly life for eternal life and victory over the grave, just as Christ had done. His death was a triumph, and all who are faithful unto death will also triumph. You know, it may seem like we're being asked to give up too much when our life is on the line, but the truth is that what we lose in this life for Christ is an investment in an eternal life to come. So we don't have to be desperately concerned about this life and when it ends. You know, someone pointed out that Nero lost his crown and Paul lost his head, but Paul died the victor. So, in conclusion, the church of myrrh and bitterness, it actually was agreeable and precious to Christ. It was one of only two churches that he had really nothing bad to say about. Though it was persecuted unto death, the very crushing released the fragrance of love and grace and patient endurance that is so precious in the sight of the master. Someone has said that during this persecution, the alabaster box of Christian fragrance was broken and perfume has filled the centuries. That's the work of Smyrna. We're talking about it still to this day. We have application to our lives to this day. There is a saying, hard times make strong men, strong men make good times. Good times make weak men, weak men make hard times. God never gives us more than we can bear, but so many backs are broken under the weight of persecution, suffering, and despair. The reason for this is that they didn't truly believe suffering was for their good before the suffering came. Instead, they tried to convince themselves of it or were told in the midst of suffering, and it's much harder to come to that belief in the midst of suffering if you didn't go into it believing it. There's a principle demonstrated by Jesus in his letter to Smyrna. It's that you have to deal with and release fear and doubt before the trials come. Because it can be too hard to see in the storms of life. 
You know, Satan wants to use the suffering God means for your good as a way to break your back, steal your hope, keep you from being fully restored to God. He wants, he wants to see you stained for all eternity. Don't let him do that. Keep your eye on the prize. Remember Jesus' closing words to the church at Smyrna. Remain faithful when suffering comes, even if the suffering ends with your death. Hear me, precious child. You know me. I am Jesus. You know I understand what you are going through. You know it. If you endure this suffering, which is ultimately but a light affliction when measured against the weight of eternity, you will not be destroyed in death, but will be raised like me to eternal life. These troubling and difficult days will pass, and I have great things in store for you. Never lose sight of that. In my own words, that is what Jesus said in that verse. So the lesson is before you. You know, life is full of suffering whether you're a Christian or not. If you are a Christian, that suffering, it has a purpose and it makes sense. If you're not a Christian, it makes no sense at all. If you're tired of suffering to no purpose, there is only one way to make it count for something. You have to acknowledge and repent of your sins. You have to confess that you believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, and you have to submit to him in the water, watery grave of baptism. There is no other way. Anything else is just Satan trying to trick you all over again. Come to Jesus. He will save you. And if you've already been saved and you're struggling with the suffering of life, know that it is serving the purpose of healing you. It isn't just some punishment or penance to teach you a lesson. Remember that thanks to Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for you. That suffering you endure isn't to hurt you, even though it is hurtful. That suffering is the treatment. If you're suffering, rejoice. For it means the Holy Spirit hasn't given up on you. He's doing a mighty work in you. And he has great plans in store for you. That pain that you feel is the discomfort of healing in your life. But I know that sometimes it's hard to take bad-tasting medicine and you might need help. So if that describes you, if you're ready to be baptized or if you need the prayers of the church, now is your opportunity to come forward to this front bench as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.